Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Literature, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm here today with author and professor Jessica Hendry Nelson to talk about her forthcoming book, or uh, out just out now, right? Just Joy- out September first. Just out September first. Uh, that's September 2023. It's called Joy Rides Through the Tunnel of Grief. Um, out with the University of Georgia Press. Hi, and welcome Hi, to. Uh, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. It is, uh, it is so good to talk to you. Where are you today? I am in Richmond, Virginia. Specifically, I am in my guest room slash baby room slash office. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> right, because as well as being a working writer, you're also a professor at Virginia Commonwealth. That's right, BCU, um, in their MFA program. So we have a, a Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing. So I teach in that program and I, I teach some undergrads too, but primarily in the MFA program here. Okay, great. I mean, I saw something about Nebraska Omaha as well. Yes. So I've been for about 10 years now, I um, have been teaching in the low residency MFA program at the University of Nebraska in Omaha. Um, and I love that program. We go twice a year for 10 days for residencies and then, you know, students work with a mentor one-on-one you know, through the semester. So it's a, it's a beautiful program. Oh, that sounds really nice. And more, more public school kids, more of like getting at these students. A lot of non-traditional students, which is great. A lot of teachers, um, older adults, you know, it really, I mean, it's just a huge range. You know, our students run the, I mean, we have some traditionally aged students for sure, but um, just a lot, a lot of cool people with a lot of diverse backgrounds and interests and, you know, reasons for doing the program. And we all come together and it's just a big nerd fest for 10 days, twice a year. And it's glorious. God, it sounds glorious. It's glorious. You know, so I was thinking about this and we'll get to the book in a minute, but if you don't mind, I'd like to start with kind of the professor stuff. Um, just the nature of our podcast here. Um, And so like being a professor is something a lot of people have to do in order to do what they want to do, right? Like spend time in archives or look at art or make chemicals do chemical stuff or in your case, write. So like, and so this was probably almost certainly in the cards for you all along, right? Being a professor. Um, Yeah. So was this an easy fit or did you find it to be a struggle? Mm, I love that question. I'm so happy to answer it. Um, no, I I just love teaching. I think that, um, you know, there was, first of all, it's not, it's not easy. You know, these jobs are, are few and far between and, you know, every year it gets even harder. And so I'm always sort of advising my students, my grad students in particular, um, to think about a plan B, you know, because these jobs are just, they're just so hard to come by. Um but it's good work if you can get it. You know, for me, it was just the most um, 
it's the most generative, beautiful experience. I, I, I pinch myself every day. I mean, I can't believe that my job is to get up and go talk to other interesting, interested writers and readers for a living. That's amazing to me. What, what could be better than that? Um, so it was terrifying at first, you know, my first years of teaching, I've been teaching in higher ed since I was 24, I think. Um, yeah, so I was so young, you know, I was about the same age as my students and had no idea what I was doing and, um, you know, just absolutely terrified and remained terrified for the next like five or so years. (laughs) And then at some point, um, you know, I kind of figured it out a little bit and, um, and, and I just got really vested and interested in, in pedagogy and, um, and so it's a big part of, I recently did my third year review, which is like the midway, you know, mm-hmm. academics, you guys all know. So, um, and, you know, writing that dossier and having to communicate the intersections of my creative work and my teaching work you know, and, and even my service was such, you know, I dreaded doing it, of course, but, um, but it really was clarifying for me, you know, to just see all the ways that my creative work and my, and my teaching intersect. Um, so I wrote, you know, I wrote a, I collaborated on, on a textbook, advanced creative nonfiction with a colleague of mine, Sean Prentice. And that was another, you know, edifying experience for me to take, all of, you know, the craft that I had been developing, cobbling together, figuring out over the years, and then, you know, codify it in this book was, um, it was extremely difficult and extremely rewarding. So for me, it's, it's a, it's a beautiful, natural fit. I, I love teaching. I feel very fortunate to be able to do it. Uh, yeah, I, I get that. And uh, I think there are people for whom it, it never stops being a struggle. And I, I'm sorry, you know, yeah, it, yeah. it can be really beautiful. It's not for everybody. You know, it is definitely not for everybody. And, you know, sometimes there's a lot of, you know, bureaucracy for sure, department stuff, you know, back end stuff that I don't love. It's really frustrating and hard to navigate. Um, the students can be frustrating and hard to navigate. But, you know, for the most part, they're just curious, you know, voracious, wonderful humans who I just feel really lucky to, to get to spend time with. Right on. So tell me about how these two things do interact. Like, how does mm-hmm. your service, well, like that's a, maybe a bit of a stretch, but still, but how does your writing, mm-hmm. and your, how do your writing and your teaching kind of feed into one another? How does that work? Well, so it's, you know, it's a matter of craft. Like I'm discovering things every day. Sometimes I go into the classroom and a student will say something so illuminating about craft that I had never considered before. And I just want, all I want to do is go back and write, you know? So, and the flexibility of my curriculum is such that, you know, I get to design classes that are based on what I'm interested in, in the moment, you know, and usually that's what I'm working on creatively. So I'll give you an example. So recently I designed a class um, called Forms of Joy and Creative Nonfiction because I was, you know, really, I was vested in writing these essays about wonder and awe and, you know, how to get that on a page, on, on the page in a way that's just as interesting as, 
as grief or trauma or, you know, other kinds of experiences. And, and I believe that I believe that, you know, joy on the page can be really as, as varied and interesting and, um, as, as, you know, other kinds of experiences. So, and I, it was, you know, in the middle of the pandemic, I think my students were really needing, you know, a way to find and locate joy. And so this class became a natural extension of the work that I was doing creatively in any case. So we were doing all of these attention harnessing practices, you know, and we were taking, oh, how to do nothing, the Jenny O'Dell book. So Jenny O'Dell writes this, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful book. She's an artist and a professor at Stanford and um, is really making a call for our leisure time, um, which is, you know, a, I think a call that a lot of people are making these days, but, you know, she does it in a really well-researched way. And so we read that book. That was our textbook. And we read books like, you know, The Book of Delights by Ross Gay and, um, you know, books that are really interested in finding small moments of beauty. And uh, and that was, you know, it was their practice. It was their class. But I was just as much invested in in figuring, you know, figuring what it was all about as they were. Um, so, yeah, so there's just, you know, it's it's a it's a selfish, you know, in some ways it's a selfish practice to design these classes around my own interests. But I think if you're doing that, you know, you're going to be just as excited as, as the students are. And they feel that they feel that energy. Yeah. That is probably the key, right. Is to actually love what you're teaching. It's going to become so much better. You know, I'm glad you brought up joy because it's something that I kind of wanted to talk about today. Um, And it's in the title, right. Joy rides. But I was thinking like, Joy rides aren't necessarily always joyful. <laughs> I mean, at the at, or at anyway, that joy is definitely wrapped up with like the clandestine and kind of liminal thing that's going on. Is that a fair? What am I saying? Is that reasonable? Uh, so that is completely reasonable. I mean, that's what you know. In many ways, that's exactly what I'm interested in in this book is the intersections of joy and grief. You know, and it is a liminal place. And um, you know, my experiences of grief, which have been many and varied, you know, are 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 tough. Of course, they are right. But they've also, in my experience, been very much sensory experiences. I think, you know, when we're in grieving, um, our senses are heightened. You're, you're, you're more finely tuned to the, to the world around you for whatever reason. Um, and I do a lot of walking in general, but especially, you know, during times of grief, it's like a strategy for me to get through it. Um, and so, you know, that just opens you up to kind you know, moments of, of joy and, um, part of what I'm writing about is the anticipatory grief of losing my brother who is, you know, su- is suffers from substance use disorder. And for the last 25 years, you know, it's could at any moment die, you know, and that's still the case, you know, I'm always sort of waiting for that horrible phone call. Um, but that experience of anticipatory grief also meant maybe that I was, I also was very much attuned. That was my way of coping you know, was to be more tuned and to find joy in these small moments. So, um, you know, it's related to the sublime. It's, you know, Stendhal syndrome. It's, it's experiences that 
incorporate both, both, you know, both emotions. That's my experience of joy is, is it's not a, it's not one thing, you know, it's contradictory things that coexist and you got to hold them in the same breath. Um, which is what good writing does, what good art does, right? You just have to accept those contradictory truths. Sure. There's so much joy running through this book, like little moments of your essays. Um, and I, the feeling, despite some really un, really tough things to read, I still found myself um, smiling. I would find myself smiling while I was reading. And good. I would, you I'm know. so glad to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> The other time I kind of, I lost myself a lot was reading about your relationship with your friend, Jesse, mm. which is just delightful. And it caught me and I would find that I wasn't reading anymore. I was just staring off into the middle distance, um, thinking about my best girlfriends and that yeah. love, right? And it seems excessive to say it's the most formative relationship. Like, how do you, how do you say that? But it's so important to think about our girlfriends. It is so important. I just want to talk about our girlfriends and think about girlfriends and celebrate our girlfriends. And I mean, that just is, you know, I don't think it gets enough attention in literature, in art, in culturally, we don't pay enough attention to it. You know, part of the research I did for this book was looking at the history of friendships between women and why and how those have shifted over the years um, and the value that culture places on them. You know, I, and I don't think it's excessive to say it's one of the most formative relationships of my life. I mean, she has been my, my companion since the age of seven, you know, my closest companion and the one who, you know, is there through all, all of it. Right. And who can just show up and, you know, you're, you've just gotten divorced and you can't pick yourself up off the floor and, you know, we'll just sit there and, you know, sit Shiva with you. Yeah. You know, she just, um, is that person. And, and if you're very lucky, we have a person like that in our lives, I think. Um, and so I was, you know, that was one of my, goals in this book was to try to write that friendship in a way that felt vital to other people. Um, you know, because it's not just, it's not just, you know, grief experience after grief experience, you know, we have these other, you know, relationships that are just sustaining and that relationship with her is sustaining. It's a, it's a, um, we're very lucky, you know, to have each other. (laughs) It's so funny because it's so easy, but it also requires as much work as any other relationship. And oh my god, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, it, it absolutely. I mean, it's anything you have to cultivate it, you have to tend to it. You know, we live, um, you know, five hours apart now. We've for our whole adult, you know, since I left for college at eighteen, you know, we've lived many states apart. And, uh, and we tend to this thing, you know, because it is important. It, mm-hmm. you know, I've had many friendships that just, you know, over the years, as we do, as we move around and grow and change, you know, that just kind of evaporate, but, um, but not this one, you know, and right. yeah, it's, it's special. Yeah. And it's, there's a lot of love in this book. Um, yeah. And there's a lot of love as in all these forms, right? I see it. I see a responsibility, 
I see love as a desire. Um, I see it almost in some places in your life, like an almost literal weight that you've got to slap around with you. Um, Can you comment on that? That's a great question. I'm so glad you noticed that. Yeah, it is. It is. a. Um, I mean, I, I think that's just part of what, you know, I was I was interested in exploring in this book. It became it started with a question about love. And, you know, I started writing these essays because my then, you know, partner of 15 years, you know, who I had been with since the age of 18 and was about to marry had just you know, confess that he didn't want to have a child ever. Um, And that was a question that we had not appropriately, you know, covered in our many years together for whatever reason, because it just, you know, I, I, I think when you're 18, it wasn't imperative. It wasn't, there was no urgency at 24 or 27 or 20. There was no urgency to it. And so we just hadn't, we hadn't come to any conclusions together about it. Um, And we, you know, I would advise any young person in a long-term relationship to have those conversations, but we, we just didn't. And I, you know, because we both, I think had a lot of ambivalence and weren't sure. And, um, and so when he came to me, um, you know, a few months before our our wedding, um, and, and said really definitively, he did not want to have a child with me, with anyone ever, and he was very sure about that. You know, it was a real shock to the system, and it and it forced me to 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 figure out, you know, what that meant to me. And that's a question of love. You know, to me, it always felt like a question of love. And I remember saying to him a lot, um, you know, how could you not want to make more love? <laughs> that's what it felt like to me. I'm like, we can make more love, and that's what you know. That all of my ambivalence, which was a lot of ambivalence about having a child or not having a child, which was made more complicated by the nature of my family and, you know, the various griefs in my family Mm -hmm. um, felt ultimately to come down to that. And I I just, I didn't, I didn't want to live this one life, you know, without um, the opportunity for this other kind of love, you know, that, that um, I had heard about so much about. So, um, so it started with questions of love. So, it, you know, that's how the book evolved. And and it's really asking that as its central questions. You know, could I make a life out of art? Could my creative imperative be satisfied by art making in lieu of human making? You know, would that be a kind of generative, um, you know, would, would that be a romance, satis- you know, that would satisfy that urgency to, to make things? And so that's sort of suffused. That's the thread that, that I think, you know, drove this book was questions of love. And so, and the way that they, you know, manifest good, bad, ugly, Mm -hmm. um, in, in all the relationships in, in my life, but in life, you know, this book is memoir, of course, but I think I'm, you know, my approach to creative nonfiction and memoir is always, you know, it's not, it's about me in the sense that the content and the material, you know, contains experiences of my life, but those experiences are really just their conduits to have these other conversations. One of the things that really resonated with me as well is like how much you see in your life, which made me think of mine and everyone else's is how much of your life just happens. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And and your part of living is just responding to the things that have happened to you. Right. Right. Like all of us in a lot of ways. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, um, and I'm wondering how much um, I've been, the, the, I was meditating a, a lot on the idea of how much of this is about being a woman um, mm. and how much of being a woman really influences the, our, our options and kind of how we're going to respond. Yeah, I think, and, you know, like all of the questions in this book, I don't think I, ha- I come to any answers necessarily. I don't have any answers to this, but I am really curious about the way that my womanhood impacts the way that I move through the world, which I know is influenced by my womanhood, both, you know, biologically, physiologically, and culturally, you know, that's just, of course, the way that I see and navigate the world. And so, you know, as I'm trying to answer questions about like, do I want a child? Do I need to have a kid? you know, to satisfy this life, you know, part of that is asking that question in the context of this particular womanhood and what that means about how I can handle these sorts of things, how I relate to, to certain things, you know, how I relate to my, my friendships with women, for example, or my mother and my grandmother who are really, you know, have always been really influential in my life. And, um, and then culturally, you know, just how, you know, like how I, you know, I was very afraid of motherhood as this institution, you know, not as like the, the verb of mothering or having a child, but becoming a mother in a culture that really devalues and, and infantilizes and, mm-hmm. um, you know, just in, in any way possible, you know, marginalize and, and make more difficult that experience. So, you know, that I can't, I can't escape my womanhood, um, nor would I want to, but it, it's, it's a, it's a question, you know, that I, it's a way through which I want to understand, you know, these other big questions about love and wonder and awe. And I don't know, I don't know. I didn't come to any answers about it, but. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know that. I don't know that there are right answers. Um, and then, I mean, but there is the woman, you're, you're this woman, but you also write about the women. Yeah. Uh, do you want to talk <laughs> a bit more about that? Yeah. So, I mean, the women, so capital, capital W, the women, the women. Capital W. That's right. Um, and it's always felt like my women, my women, you know, I have a lot of women in my life and it just, in my family, we've had a lot of ailing men and strong women. Um, and you know, addiction is rampant in my family. It's, it's just in our case, it happens to be the men, my father, my uncles, my grandfather, my brother, and then, you know, for, and then we have just some really powerful women. So the women in the book are my mother and her mother, my, my mama, who's now 92 um, and vital as ever, just really vibrant and, and alive. Even, even though she just had a, a stroke, you would never know. She's amazing. Um, but they, they played a really big influence in my life. So part of what I was uh, looking at is the ways that their influence helped me learn how to move through grief. You know, there, there are certain ways that I move through grief and, you know, and, and that's like my grief practices and my creative pra- practices are really related in the sense that, you know, I became a watcher and, um, and that meant like watching the women, like by, by watching and observing their behavior. And I think this is true for any kid who has maybe some trauma in there. Uh, you know, you learn to navigate it through being really observational and, 
I watched them as a way of figuring out, you know, how safe I was at any given moment. And, you know, I could, I, it's like learning to play, to play an instrument. You know, I, I learned to listen to their, their tone and their gesture by ear and could figure out, you know, what was going on with my father, whether he was doing well, whether he had, you know, was, had relapsed, whether he was in jail, whether he was coming, you know, to disrupt our lives, whether we were safe for a while. Um, that was how I, you know, I learned to, to survive as a survival mechanism. Um, and their influence remained really powerful in my life, you know, for, for good and, and bad. I mean, there are some behaviors I learned from them that no longer served me, you know, and need, needed to, or, or still need to learn how to move differently. But, um, you know, I, I was really interested in, in looking at this relationship and the way that these three generations, you know, uh, coexist Mm -hmm. and, and what we inherit from our, our, our women, you know, I think we inherit a lot of, and particularly grief, you know, I, I I think that we inherit the grief of our mothers and our grandmothers and our great grandmothers. And what does that mean? You know, what do we do with it? How do we, you know, make it something that isn't debilitating? How do we hold it? How do we honor it? Those, those sorts of questions. Mm -hmm. And so it seems the way you deal with this is by writing, which I guess is like just this question that I continue to have as I was reading through this. And I read when I read creative nonfiction and memoir is just good Lord. Why do you do this? It seems so hard. (laughs) (laughs) I think that a lot of people feel that way. (laughs) Yeah. But is this a processing? Like I kind of mean it. I kind of would like to know, like, do you just, is it your favorite thing? Like, or, you know, is it your favorite way of dealing with grief? Maybe. Yeah. That's so, that's a really good question. I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to figure out like when I started doing this kind of work, like to answer your question, honestly, I think I have a very different relationship to it now than I did 20 years ago when I first started writing creative nonfiction. And I think the biggest difference is when I write creative nonfiction now, um, I think I've become really adept at depersonalizing the material. And I, uh, of course I feel it, you know, I don't, I don't become a robot. Um, but it is like good therapy. It's a way of taking control of your story, of your narrative. And, um, I think that's what therapy helps us do is to, is to in some ways, you know, better understand and navigate our own life stories. But it's also, you know, for me, it's just, it's just material now. It's just content, you know, and I happen to have a really, and we all do. I mean, I don't think creative nonfiction is really that much different from fiction, from poetry, um, in the sense that we're using our lived experiences to make art, to ask questions, you know, and that's, that's really what we all do. I think, you know, creative nonfiction is just more explicit about it. But, um, you know, where, when we're writing a novel about mother daughter relationships, for example, I mean, that's all drawing from the same emotional landscape, you know, our own personal emotional landscape. So it's not, that different. I mean, the biggest difference is having to navigate those real p- 
people in your life, right? And that's a kind of, that's a relationship question, not a, not a craft question. Um, when I first started doing this work, it was, it was more emotional. I wasn't, you know, I, I was very vested and wrapped up in, but I, I was really determined to, I saw this work as a kind of love story to really complicated people. And I thought if I could get them down on the page that honored everything that was so complex and interesting to me about the people I loved, um, that would feel that, I don't know, that would feel good to me. That would feel like I had honored them in some way. Um, because, you know, my father just died. And I think part of that was trying to, to write him in a way that honored, you know, what was lovely and beautiful and good in him while also acknowledging the ways that he suffered and, and screwed up. Um, so, you know, it, it evolves like any other creative practice, but, um, it's not as, I think it's for those of us who really love creative nonfiction, I think, you know, our lives are just more explicitly some of the material through which we ask questions. It, it, it's, it, someone said, who was it? One of my favorite writers said creative nonfiction is not about it's, you know, we write creative nonfiction through. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that feels to me more sincere. Yeah. That's a great answer to a kind of ridiculous question. Like, why do you do this thing? No, I mean, it's not a ridiculous question. People want to know all the time, right? I mean, like, <laughs> it feels very, like, it could be a really fraught and difficult experience. And maybe for a lot of people, it would be maybe, of a you know, some of us have a certain kind of temperament where if, you know, we can do this sort of mental gymnastics, you do in some ways have to do a kind of, I was, I had dinner with a student, one of my grad students last night. And, um, I said something like, oh, this might be, you know, TMI. And she said, well, I did just read your book, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I said, yeah, yep. You're right. You're right. I think I do have to do a little, you know, I have to, um, you know, do some like willful, you know, disconnect to, to write this work and put it in the world and, you know, n not think about how much, you know, my students or my colleagues or, you know, other people in my life might know about me. Or a random stranger over here in Amsterdam. Or random stranger, right, right, right. <laughs> I get that. Um, thank, okay, I've taken so much of your time. Thank you so much for that. I just feel like one more question, super easy one. What's next? What are you working on? Hmm, I'm working on a novel. <laughs> okay. I am, yeah, I am, um, I'm taking a break from creative nonfiction, just a little one. And, uh, and once I, you know, have some more to say about this whole mothering thing, I'll, I'll, I'll be back to the essay for sure. sure. Um, but I'm working on a novel right now. It's, I'm having so much fun working on it. It takes place in Atlantic city, um, during, uh, the early two thousands, about the time when Trump was, uh, in there, uh, mucking about and screwing everybody's lives up. So, um, it's, it's about two sisters and, uh, and they're living, you know, I'm really interested in people who live in communities that are seasonal. So, um, they're, they live year round in Atlantic city and it's about the, the people they live with and the communities they form and 
their complicated relationship and and Trump. So, <laughs> yikes! Speaking of complex, okay, yeah, complex character that we all have to come to terms with. Um, so it's, it's a new venue or a different way to get at some of these themes that are in that I see in this work and in um, your last collection, whose name is Only Good. People Could Follow Directions. It's such a great title. <laughs> so, and it, a lot of the same themes. Yeah. Yeah. You're- yeah, it is. And so, yeah, in some ways, I mean, I think we, you know, we all chew the same bones our whole lives. So this is just a new way of chewing that bone, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm having so much fun. Yeah, that must be really liberating to just be it able is. to make it up. It is. It is liberating in a lot of ways. But, it, you know, in some ways it can be what I love. One of the things I love about creative nonfiction is that it can be really creative because you have restrictions, you know? So the minute those restrictions are, are gone, it could, you know, it can be paralyzing too. So learning to work in that new way and learning how to create restrictions for myself rather than just, you know, the, the restriction of my true and lived experiences. um, That's, that's how I'm figuring out how to, how to write fiction you know, is to sort of set, set restrictions and guidelines for myself so I can push against them. All right. Wonderful. Thank you so much. All right. This conversation with Jessica Henry Nelson has been about joy rides through the tunnel of grief, uh, out with the university of Georgia press on the website. You can find a link to bookshops so you can buy it and please do. I promise you're going to, uh, feel, and almost certainly uh, want to give it immediately to all the women in your life. I found that same situation. All right. Um, and once again, Jess, thank you very much. Thank you so much.